Tim Thefford. I'm one of the associate pastors here. And uh, during first service, I just kind of jumped into uh, the teaching. I didn't have like a funny or a crazy story at the beginning. And so people were just kind of looking at me like, like, where's the funny? Where's the... So during the break, I thought about it. I got, I got nothing. I'm sorry. So I'm going to be going through the the framework of the, the five solas as we look at our passage today, which is uh, God alone justifies, Romans 3, 21 through 26. All right, these Latin phrases are commonly known as the five solas of the Reformation. They're sola scriptura, or scripture alone, solus Christus, which is Christ alone, Sola fide, faith alone, sola gratia, grace alone, and sola deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. And these uh, five statements of the evangelical faith, uh, they distinguish the the Protestant reformers from the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church in the 16th century. And they still do today. And inherent in the solas are, are these biblical doctrines, these biblical truths uh, one of being that Scripture is breathed out by God, that it is our inerrant, sufficient, ultimate authority for salvation. Not church traditions, not councils, not even church leaders. And, and while there may have been, while they might have value, uh, all other authorities in the Christian life serve underneath Scripture. Uh, they also speak to that we are not saved by works. Uh, nor anything else we or anyone else can add, uh, not ceremonies, not rituals, not ordinances, not the saints or Mary. It's God alone who saves. And so anything that's compact, that's easy to remember, is beneficial when I'm out witnessing or when I'm just talking to someone about why Christianity is unique. And so the solas have been helpful to me as I've uh, had conversations with Latter-day Saints. Those of you that know me know I love Mormons. I've had hundreds of conversations. Uh, Mormons will say that they are just a different denomination of Christianity and that we believe the same things, that there are some differences, but those differences aren't of any real consequence. But because there are significant differences between the two beliefs, and these significant differences are essential to life, uh, the solas are a great witnessing tool. So beyond a witnessing tool, the solas are, are a summary of the beauty of the gospel. They demonstrate what God has accomplished for us as evidence of His great mercy and love. So the justification for uh, Scripture alone is seen in passages like 2 Timothy 3, which says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so that's where we're going to begin this morning. Let me pray for us. God, we have come to your word this morning, and we know that it is good because you are good. You have blessed us with your revelation, and so let us learn, let us be corrected in our thinking, let us be trained up, and what is right, so that we would be made mature, complete, ready for the good works you have prepared for us to do. You have put us in this time in 2022, in this location, 
in our jobs, in our schools, in the families that you have placed us. God, we want to love you and serve you well, give you all the glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, our passage today is Romans 3, 21 through 26. It's page 885 in your pew Bibles. You can turn there now. Uh, but first, Martin Luther, he called today's passage the chief point in the very central place of the epistle and the Bible. So no pressure for me there. My hope is that as Christians, we would rejoice that God makes the unrighteous righteous and he does that in Christ alone, by his grace alone, through faith alone, and for his glory alone. And it's been a couple weeks since we've been in Romans. We had Mother's Day last week. So let me paraphrase the predicament that we're in for context. Paul says, everyone is under the power of, everyone is our slaves to sin, that none is righteous, not one person, no one understands, no one seeks for God, not one. Our throats are like the rotting remains of a coffin dug up after years of decay. Our tongues are used to deceive. There is snake venom under our lips. Our mouths are full of curses and bitterness. We run towards violence. We are destined for ruin and misery. We don't know peace. We are proud and arrogant and foolishly unafraid of the Almighty God. There is not a thing we can say in defense of ourselves when presented with God and with His will, His truth. We are all guilty and will be held accountable. There is no way to work hard enough to earn being made right before the Holy God. It's bad news. But that's the reality apart from God. Please stand for the reading of our scripture this morning. Romans 3, verses 21 to 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, verse 21 says, But now... Paul shifts from the past to the present, from darkness into light, from oppression to relief, from the dominion of sin to the power of the gospel for salvation. Two words, simple yet beautiful, but now. From being justly condemned, helpless in the power of sin, unable to escape the wrath of God, but now everything changes. God himself intervenes. As far as miracles go, this one is massive. That the unrighteous are made righteous. This righteousness of or from God is grounded in who God is. It's in his perfect, his holy, his righteous character. 
It is his saving initiative to bestow his gift of declaring us righteous before him. He makes the unrighteous righteous. He justifies the just. In the Greek, the words righteousness and justification are closely related, and Paul interchanges them in our passage. Those that are made righteous are justified before God, who is the righteous justifier. And justification is a, is a legal term, the opposite of which is condemnation. These are both pronouncements of a judge, and these will be the final verdicts of God on the judgment day. All will stand before the throne of God and be either condemned or justified. So when God justifies sinners today, he's saying, that will be my judgment then. God brings this future reality into the present for those that are his. This is more than just a pardon. A pardon is the remission or the forgiveness of a penalty or debt. Justification is the bestowal, the transfer of righteous status. The sinner is not just excused of their sin, they're restored to fellowship with God. They are brought into His favor. We, we are seen as He sees Christ. We have His righteousness. To the one who is simply forgiven, we say, okay, you're off the hook. You can go free. But to the one who is justified, we say, come, stay, experience my presence, my, my care, my affection. Welsh theologian C.H. Dodd, he says, pardon and justification, therefore, are essentially distinct. The one is the remission of punishment, the other is the declaration that no ground for the infliction of punishment exists. And so it's the difference between a driver who's cleared from responsibility in a car accident and a, and a child whose parent says, I don't care about the car. I'm just glad that you're okay. Let me be here, clear here. Justification doesn't mean that we're done, that there's no need for sanctification. The difference is the difference between being declared righteous and being made righteous. And so justification means that we have been given this new status, and, and not, although not identical, we have also been given a new heart. We've been regenerated, given new life by the Holy Spirit, and in doing so, we have been put on the path to progressive holiness through the lifelong process of sanctification. We are legally just so that we can start being morally just. We are declared righteous by the righteous one, and his gift to us is, again, a miracle in itself and infinitely beyond any human righteousness. But now, back to verse 21, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Righteousness is apart from the law. Praise God. Thanks be to God. Otherwise, we're all in trouble. We can't keep God's standard. The Jews couldn't keep the law, although some prided themselves in the outward appearance of following the rules. But then Jesus comes along, and when Jesus taught, he raised the bar. Well, actually, he just showed how high the bar really was. He says over and over, you have heard that it was said, followed by, but I say to you. He says, you think you're good because you haven't killed anyone? 
But then he asks, have you hated someone? Have you insulted them? Have you called them a fool? What about adultery? No. Okay. But have you ever lusted in your heart? You love your neighbor? Great. What about your enemies? Do you love them? Jesus revealed that what God had intended to demonstrate, who he was and his will for our lives, was so that we could grow in relationship with him, so that we could grow in relationship with others. And unfortunately, this became a game of of so-called holiness for religious leaders. And unfortunately, I think they misled many to either pursue um, self-salvation or hypocrisy or despair or apathy. The law can't save us because the law exposes and it condemns our sin. The law brings the knowledge of sin, not forgiveness. And the reality is that all of humanity has a sin problem. It's a cancer that affects our minds and our hearts, our relationships and our desires. We suffer from a radical inner corruption so that we do what is wrong and we don't do what is right. We don't love God. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. So then how does a righteous God declare the unrighteous to be righteous? It would seem that that to do so, he would have to compromise his righteousness or condone unrighteousness. Justice demands that the guilty be condemned. Think about famous court cases or every book or movie or TV show that involves corruption or crime. Michelle, I think, has seen every uh, episode of every iteration of Law and Order that I think is, is out there. She loves that show. There's a satisfaction when the wrongdoer is brought to justice. We know uh, if the culprit gets away, if someone gets away with a crime, there, there's this sense of injustice. It's a miscarriage of injustice of justice to, if the guilty go free, either through the failing of the court or especially if the leniency of the judge is at fault. We stand with the victims of the crimes. And so we're outraged when a guilty person goes free or an innocent person is condemned. We scream that justice has been perverted, that God, and the the reality is, is that God is no different. Deuteronomy 25.1, it says, if there is a dispute between men and they come into court and the judge Judges decide between them, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty. God tells the Israelite judges that they must free the righteous and convict the guilty. This is pretty straightforward for a good judge, right? That they would call the guilty, guilty, and the innocent, innocent. Proverbs 17 says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both like an abomination to the Lord. God hates injustice. Exodus 23, keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. God will have nothing to do with false charges. He will have nothing to do with exonerating the guilty. And so how does a righteous God then declare the unrighteous to be righteous and remain righteous himself? The answer is the cross. It's in Christ alone. But now, Verse 24, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. There is hope 
and that hope is in Christ. The perfect picture of radical righteousness was displayed in the life of Christ. Paul tells the church in Corinth, he says, and because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. What a relief it is to be found in Christ. We can be made righteous apart from the works of the law through the one who lived the law perfectly. Paul will make the case in Romans 5, saying, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one of act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, he's talking about Adam there, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, meaning Jesus, the second Adam, the many will be made righteous. We are made righteous through Christ's obedience to the will of the Father. In doing so, Christ was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we were healed through his atoning sacrifice for sin. Back to our passage, verse 21 says, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the prophets foreshadowed a Messiah that would come and take away sin. God prepared a way through a temporary atonement sacrificial system, Paul points to the authority of God's word. He's not creating this out of thin air. Although to the hearers of Paul's letter, this was new, it was not a novel redemption. It was a fulfillment of the Old Testament in Christ. It wasn't an afterthought, but God's divine intention from the beginning. And so we are justified through the redemption that came through the blood of Christ Jesus, which means his sacrificial death on the cross. As justification is borrowed from the courtroom, the word redemption is a term borrowed from the marketplace. And it it basically means liberation through payment. And in the Old Testament, it was used to describe when slaves or war criminals, uh, uh, I'm sorry, prisoners of war, convicted criminals, they were purchased in order to be set free. They were ransomed. And it was used to describe Israel being redeemed from captivity in Egypt and then in Babylon as they were restored to their own land. In the same way, we were slaves. We were captives in bondage to our own sin and guilt without any way to rescue ourselves. And so Jesus says uh, in Mark's gospel, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. His blood was the price paid to ransom us, setting us free, saved from sin. We are now bought and belong to Christ. Paul will later say, um, do I have it here? Nope. All right. Uh, Paul will later say in Romans 5, he'll say, for while we were still weak, while we were powerless to save ourselves, while we were helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so God demonstrates his love for us in that he redeems sinners who are set free by Christ. Saved from sin, we are bought 
We belong to Christ. We're being justified. We are now put into a right relationship with him. A relationship characterized by peace and not by wrath. Back to our passage. Redemption is in Christ Jesus. Verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. And propitiation means uh, to placate or appease one's anger or wrath. And we don't like that word wrath, and especially in reference to God. Many would say, well, isn't God love? Not wrath. Many today are uncomfortable with a God who would have wrath, and in trying to protect him, they would actually change their theology that removes the wrath of God. But the human predicament, the bad news, is not only that we are sinners, but that God is holy and therefore has a holy and just wrath upon us. As we have seen in Romans already, uh, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth as well. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteousness, righteous judgment will be revealed. And so, um, like Clay taught last week, God saves us from himself. Romans 5 says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So it's God's love that, for us that he would send Christ as this propitiation, as this appeasement for his wrath. Interestingly, the word that Paul uses here for propitiation, um, in the one other time that it's used in the New Testament, it's used many times in the Old Testament, but most of the time in the, in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, the word propitiation uh, is actually translated as mercy seat. And so in the Old Testament, in Jewish tradition, the mercy seat was understood to be the place of atonement. It was a golden cover to the Ark of the Covenant, where sacrificial animal blood was sprinkled by the high priest on the Day of Atonement. It was a means of atoning for the sins of the people and, opposing, uh, and uh, appeasing God's wrath, His just wrath against sin. And inside the Ark, there were um, uh, a few things, among them the stone tablets containing the Ten Commandments. And so the Day of Atonement ceremony, it revealed, it, it displayed the fact that a broken law stood between a holy God and mankind. But through the shedding of blood, the mercy seat turned a place of judgment into a place of reconciliation. And so this foreshadowing reveals Christ, not only as the blood sacrifice, but our eternal high priest and the way of atonement the means by which God gives mercy. We are reconciled to God through the sacrifice of Christ, a new covenant by his blood. He does it all. What was once hidden behind the Holy of Holies is brought into the light, the curtain is torn, and Christ is the once-for-all sacrifice that brings not only appeasement, but salvation. And so God forgives us without minimizing or condoning our sin, without circumventing justice, by taking on himself through the person of uh, his son, the full weight of his wrath, the wrath that we deserve. 
In doing so, God's holy character isn't compromised. God's hatred for evil is as real as his forgiveness of our sin because the full cup of wrath is poured out on Christ. Now, some might try to argue that the propitiation is no different for, say, the pagans, but God's wrath is far removed from the pagan picture of an unpredictable and malicious deity. God is not like the pagan so-called gods in a bad mood, throwing a tantrum, not getting their way, fickle, frustrated. No, God is good. He is perfectly good. He is perfectly righteous. He is holy, 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 being the source of what is good, being the source of what is right. And so wrongness and sin and evil are not just bad. They're not just apart from God, but they're against his very nature. And so it's an attack, a rebellion, a raised fist at who God is. He's the source of all that's good and all that's true and all that's beautiful. God's wrath, then, is just the unavoidable. It's the essential reaction of total and utter holiness to sin. It is not like, um, it is not like the pagans believe that the gods can be convinced otherwise out of their anger to be willing to forgive. Instead, it's God who initiates. It's God who provides the propitiation himself, and he's consistent in his holiness. He does what he was never unwilling to do. He accomplishes his will. The pagan sacrifice changes the God's attitudes towards men's, but God is consistent in his love and in his love for us and his hatred for sin. If you're still uncomfortable, think about someone you love. Then imagine some harm coming to them. There's some unprovoked attack. It's brutal. It's awful. Are we disconnected? Are we unemotional? No. We're passionate. We're enraged. We're not even God. We're not even the Holy One. There's nothing immoral or unpredictable or even uncontrolled in God's anger. It is the most natural and right response to evil, but it's passionate. It is wrath and it is induced by evil alone. Because the pagans believe they have offended the gods, then they must placate them. The Christian answer is that we can't appease God's righteous anger. We don't have the ability to do so. What would that even look like? God does for us what we cannot do for ourselves, not because we deserve it, but because of who he is. 1 John 4 says, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's God's idea. It's his purpose. He takes the initiative. He loves first. He acts. He gives his gift of grace. Finally, the pagans suppose they must bribe the gods with fruits or vegetables or animals, human sacrifices, but God gives himself. God the Father sacrifices God the Son to die in our place. The writer of Hebrews rightly declares, therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 
And so Christ alone, fully God, fully man, is the only sacrifice that could bear our sins and then rise victoriously from the grave, defeating death and sin on our behalf. God makes the unrighteous righteous. Not, be, not by condoning our sin, but by taking the punishment, the full weight of His righteous wrath reserved for us. He takes it on Himself in the person of the Son, so that the cross was this demonstration of God's righteous justice. Peter preaches in Acts 4.12 and says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no salvation, there is no fellowship with God apart from Christ. God would have been perfectly just to leave us in our sin, to leave us in our condemnation. Instead, in His mercy, God the Father sent Christ the Son to represent us and substitute Himself on our behalf. We are the lawbreakers. He lived a life of perfect obedience. We deserve the penalty of death. We deserve separation from God. Christ died bearing the wrath of God on our behalf. We might be tempted to think that we contribute to our redemption, even in the smallest way. But it is by grace alone. But now, verse 24 of our passage, and we are justified by His grace as a gift. It's a gift, a present, an offering without compensation. Grace is God loving in a way that rescues, that saves us from our sins, not by our effort, not by our merit, not by our disposition, but because God is merciful. Verse 24 says that those who are justified are justified by His grace as a gift. The NIV says, are justified freely by His grace. This means that God is not obligated to justify, to make right. He is not indebted or bound to anything but His own will. He finds favor with us for no reason outside of Himself. Imagine, uh, giving, uh, imagine someone gives you a lovely gift, and your response to that is, you try and pay for it. Now imagine you dig in your pocket and, and you toss them whatever's in there, a few cents, some lint. There are two problems. One, if we pay for it, it's no longer a gift. It becomes a payment. And two, hard as we might try, we could never earn the gift that God has given us. We could never earn our way to God. We could never earn our way to heaven. We could never save ourselves. God is perfectly holy. Heaven is a place of perfection. We could never be good enough. We could never pay enough. Unfortunately, I think it's, it's hard for us to really make the connection here because oftentimes our gifts uh, and the gifts that we give and receive feel uh, obligatory. Uh, we feel compelled to give gifts at birthdays and anniversaries or Christmas, for example. And there's just no way that I'm going to not come off as a Scrooge here. Um, but here goes. Everyone who has been born has a birthday every year. And so when you think about it, it's, it's, not, it's not a major accomplishment. Um, yet, yet, right, we expect gifts. Uh, to not get someone you love a gift, right, would be, would be awkward, would be horrible. This is not going to play out well for me. 
But I think the most beautiful gifts I have received have been for, for no occasion or no reason. All that to say is when we think, uh, even unconsciously, that gifts are deserved because it's a special occasion, because we're nice, because we're generous, and therefore we have generous friends, whatever, we miss the idea of grace given to us as a free gift. Regardless, God gives His grace as a gift freely, despite it being totally, utterly undeserved. A little insight here, when you're preaching on the following Sunday, as I was last Sunday, and the preacher, uh, being Clay, <laughs> he used my verse, right, which is ridiculous. Uh, he used uh, Ephesians 2.8, but I'm preparing for the sermon. I'm thinking about it. I've got this verse. I want to use it. Uh, and so, you know, it, it, and come on, he, he used it, and I was like, okay, he, he just glanced it, right? And then he said it again and again, then he made us all stand up and read it, and I'm like, oh. But I love Clay, and he's a big guy, and I don't want to make him mad because he'd attack me in the parking lot. But here it is. Starting in verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. God alone saves. It is his gift of immeasurable riches considering the depth of our sin we're in this hole that we cannot climb out of and so praise god that justification has as its source god and his gift of grace it is is grounded in christ and the cross the means that would we access that though is through faith alone and it's all together apart from works and this is not only a um, true, but it's at the heart of the gospel, and it's completely unique to Christianity. No other religion or philosophy or ideology declares free forgiveness for those that have done nothing to deserve it. None proclaim this, this new life to those who deserve judgment instead. Every other system, every other religion teaches some form of self-salvation, either through religious works or philanthropy or morality, and so this is, uh, those, are, those are in stark contrast to the gospel, which is not a list of, of things you must do, but it's the good news that God's grace has turned away his wrath. It is God the Son that has died the death we deserved, and he drank our judgment. There is nothing for us to do or to contribute to, only to receive by faith God's grace. Three times in our passage, Paul emphasizes the necessity of faith. But now, verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe, for there is no distinction. Also in verse 25 and 26, to be received by faith, the one who has faith in Jesus. Righteousness is available through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. 16th century English theologian Richard Hooker says God justified the believer not because of the worthiness of his belief, but because of his, meaning Christ's, worthiness 
who is believed. And so think about it. Faith is only as good as the object you put your faith into. The value of faith is not in faith itself. If we have faith in the wrong things, it does us absolutely no good, even if we trust in them tremendously. Our faith has value because we trust in Christ. Our faith has value because we trust in Christ crucified. We are justified by faith alone because we are justified in Christ alone. Does that mean that our faith doesn't matter? No, of course it does. We are saved by faith. We're to trust in that which is true, take steps of faith, ask the Holy Spirit to grow us in faith as we are sanctified. Faith is a gift of the Spirit, and to be full of faith is a fruit of the Spirit. The point being is that we can thank God alone for faith. Again, Paul, um, pointing back to Abraham uh, in, in, in the next chapter of Romans 4, he says, and to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And so it is through trusting in Christ alone, not our works, that we are saved. Theologian John Stott in his commentary on Romans, he says, faith is the eye that looks to Christ. It's the open hand that receives his free gift. It is the mouth that drinks the living water. Going back to our passage in Ephesians, we see that grace and faith and salvation are these beautiful gifts of God so that we have nothing to boast in. Stott continues, it is, a vital, it is vital to affirm that there is nothing meritorious about faith, and that when we say that salvation is by faith, not by works, we are not substituting one kind of merit, meaning faith, for another, meaning works, nor is salvation a sort of cooperative enterprise between God and us in which He contributes the cross and we contribute faith. If your theology says that you are justified, that you are saved, that you are in any way, um, in any way by something that you did, I would challenge you to rethink it. Whether by your religious works, or your good deeds, or your intelligence, or your love, or your choice. What about something you could have done given the right circumstances? What about the concept that God chose you because He knew you were going to choose Him? These are all instances in which we can take the credit for it, if even in the smallest degree for our salvation. We can boast in our participation, but God says no one may boast. Let's say you're unconvinced. Let's say you're resistant. You think, I love God. I show, love, uh, I show my love by obedience, by working hard to love Him back. Okay. I would say you have confused sanctification with justification. You have confused growing in holiness with how unholy people become made right before a holy God. And I think that distinction is important. Paul will say uh, to the church in Galatia, or he did say, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If we think that we can earn our way even a little bit, we nullify, we invalidate God's grace. We turn that gift into a payment. 
We are essentially saying that what Christ did for us was insufficient to save us. All right, imagine for a moment that I'm right. As Jonathan Edwards famously said, you contributed nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. How does this change our gratefulness? We did nothing to save ourselves. How does this change our worship? God alone saves. What about our response to his grace? It's a gift. What about our assurance? It's not about how good or how smart or how loving we are. We never have to question, have I done enough? 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so God's not just fair, he is worthy to be praised. Thank you, God, that not only does he, not only does all that we are and all that we have done become Christ's, but all that he is and all that he has done becomes ours. To the glory of of God alone. But now, back to our passage, verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It was to show his justice, his righteousness at the present time, sorry, verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be, the ju- might be just and the justifier. We are image bearers, made in the very image of God, but then marred by sin. And so even as Christians, we will fail to fully live up to that image until that day when God will fully restore his original glory that was lost in his image bearers. Now we can see that Jesus' death demonstrates God's righteousness. In doing so, God is just, and he is the justifier of those that have faith in Christ. And so because of the cross, God can demonstrate his justice and his mercy all to his glory. As a result, God has redeemed his people. He has propitiated his wrath. He has demonstrated his justice. God moves. He initiates. It is his grace. He stoops low. He comes. He dies. He sacrifices. He gives faith. He forgives. He justifies. He makes righteous the unrighteous. To God alone be the glory. As an aside, if, if you struggle with some of the ideas presented today, including on wrath or slavery or propitiation, or you're just interested in thinking more about them, I want to refer you to our sermons page on our website. We have archived past sermons. Let me point you to uh, a couple, one being one called the, the Wrath of God, Uh, from September 2016, another one called Slavery in Christ from April 2020. But more importantly, if you have questions, come talk to me, to any of the elders or pastors. Don't deconstruct your faith as a means of avoiding meaningful conversations about difficult issues. And if you're struggling with concepts like these, no, yeah, it can be a barrier to understanding fully what God would have you know about who he is and what he's done. But we're here to help. The world 
and everyone in it fall into one of these categories. First being the unrighteous. And, and some think, why bother? I'm beyond help. I'm too messed up to be restored. I'm going to hell. I might as well live like the devil or at least live however I want. To them, I would say, have faith. Righteousness is available to all who believe. Despite your past, despite your depth, irrespective of the depth of your sin, peace and life in Christ isn't earned. Jesus says, believe in me and you will have eternal life. The next category being the, the righteous, or actually the self-righteous, but we don't like being called that. You might, they might think, I don't need saving. I'm a good person. Or, I, or I'm, I'm working it out. I'm working towards God. I'm working towards my salvation in my own way. And what a blessing it is to be raised in the church. I, I absolutely believe that. But don't let us confuse just going to church or the kindness of the body of Christ with the reality of our own hearts. If we're honest, we would agree with Russian novelist Ivan Turgenev, who wrote, I do not know what the heart of a bad man is like, but I do know what the heart of a good man is like. And it's terrible. We know our hearts. Anglin theologian, writer, poet, Hadley Moole says, the harlot, the liar, the murderer are short of it, meaning God's glory, but so are you. Perhaps they stand at the bottom of a mine and you are on the crest of an alp, but you are as little able to touch the stars as they. Though we all sin to different degrees, none of us come close to God's standards. Or finally, the category in which we know, in which we trust, that in the light of the righteousness of God, that all are under wrath, that all need grace, but we can rejoice because, but now, by God's grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone, sinners who believe will be made just for the glory of the justifier alone. Let me pray for us. God, we're thankful for, for your word. Uh, we're thankful for all that you do for us. You give us faith. You give us your grace as a gift, God, that you save us out of your goodness, out of your mercy. We don't deserve it. God, we need to, we need your righteousness. We need to trust in the righteousness of Christ. He is never failing. He is unchanging. And he is perfect. Lord, give us that righteousness. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.